The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Living Well into the Future, where we speak with individuals from different generations about the most pressing issues of our time. From food and housing to healthcare and climate. Our show is all about exploring potential solutions to complex problems, drawing on the expertise of people from different backgrounds and age groups. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. Through meaningful conversations and thoughtful discussions, we aim to inspire positive change and make a real impact in our communities. So if you're interested in learning more about critical issues and discovering innovative solutions, join us for Living Well into the Future. Together, let's work toward a healthy and secure future for all life on this planet. In Deep Dive, Water 1 and 2, we raised issues about the complicated story of water and began the conversations. Since those first two episodes aired, the New York Times has published some very detailed stories about groundwater and water infrastructure. Did those articles pique your interest in our series? Or did we pique your interest in theirs? Tell us how the issues and solutions we present today apply in your community. We would love your input. And we love to hear about conversations these programs have inspired. You can write to us through our website, livingwellintothefuture.net, or contact us directly at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. To remind you of the roads we've traveled together, we'd like to reintroduce you to our guests in Deep Dive Water 1 and 2 with snippets from our conversations with them. After that, we'll plunge into Deep Dive Water 3 and our interviews with Dr. Charm Miller, who you heard in Water 1, and his student at the Claremont Colleges in California, Spencer Nicholas. They'll talk about the state of our water infrastructure. In Deep Dive Water One, we spoke with Dr. Richard Johnston from the World Health Organization UNICEF Joint Monitoring Program to delve into the worldwide goals for water, sanitation, and hygiene stuff that I work on for water, it's really about, like you say, the quantities and the quality of water that people have access to for drinking and domestic purposes. But there's a lot of uses for water that go beyond that. There's water for the economy, for the environment. You can think about the importance of water in agriculture, which is the biggest user of fresh water. You can think about the health of rivers and wetlands and political challenges of transboundary cooperation. And all of those different aspects of water are covered within the Sustainable Development Goal Framework. Dr. Char Miller, environmental historian and author, 
spoke about the environmental history of river water management, the politics of dams, and the crucial preservation of groundwater resources. To get to one of your sort of pivotal points, the world that we live in was created by people for whom these radical swings in temperature and moisture, drought and deluge, were much less obvious. And so they set up systems of distributing water that were predicated on the world they knew then. But we don't live then, we live now. And the now we live in operates in a very different way. And yet we have systems that are not designed to be flexible, they're rather brittle. And Heather Venhouse, ecological consultant, about her experience growing up above the disappearing Ogallala Aquifer. And just like the grain elevators that are no longer in operation, a natural question for a child is, what is that? Why is it so big? Why don't we use it anymore? And then having explained to me why the land isn't as productive anymore, because they don't have as much irrigation because the aquifer levels have gone down and it cannot recharge at the same rate. That was a conversation from a friend as far back as I can remember. It was explained to me. In Deep Dive Water 2, we focused on water security and threats from flood and droughts with Suzanne Scott, State Director of the Nature Conservancy, Texas, we try to do is look at balance as much as we possibly can and figure out how can we use the resources that we have in the most effective and efficient ways possible. So what can we do from a from the people side to be focused on conservation, to be focused on our land use? How can we make sure that every drop that falls on our land is used in the most efficient and effective way? It doesn't run off. It's not causing pollutants or erosion to our rivers and streams. How can we encourage land use practices that keep the water on the ground, like soil improvements and grassland restoration and all those things on the land that we can work with people? And then also on the river systems themselves, looking at water rights and how can we use those the most effective way that we possibly can. Someone's not using a water right. Can we dedicate it to the environment? So that's this sort of balance that we're constantly trying to do. Ryan Smith director of water and science for the Nature Conservancy, Texas. When our needs are getting greater, when they're already varied, we've already got a challenge, but we do have enough. The key thing is we need to use it differently and we need to be smarter with how we use it. And we need to do specifically a better job using existing understanding of how to use our water more efficiently, reduce demand, also work on the supply side. If we do those things, we do have enough. An architect, Ted Flato, founder and principal in Lake Flato Architects, who also founded an alliance of landowners, Headwaters Alliance, who are working to keep pristine rivers clean. It's definitely something that the next generation will probably still be working on. But the most important thing is first building alliances and friendships. And often we see when there's particular challenges, we see those as opportunities. We come together and we work together to see if we can solve some of those challenges. For more information about those episodes, other past episodes, and future episodes, go to our website, livingwellintothefuture.net. That's livingwellintothefuture.net.
oneword.net. You can find our previous episodes on WTBRFM.com and wherever you get your podcasts. In this, the third and last episode in our Deep Dive Water series, we'll return to environmental historian Dr. Char Miller, director of environmental analysis, W.M. Keck, professor of environmental analysis and history at Pomona College in California, author most recently of Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril. We'll also speak with Spencer Nicholas, a student of Charles. Spencer will share details of his independent study project exploring the complex system of water and dams in central California, a breadbasket that affects the rest of the country. As you may remember from Deep Dive Water One, Char Miller set the stage for a discussion of water. What he said then bears repeating. Everybody also recognizes that the systems that we created are dependent upon weather patterns that no longer exist. That's as true for the Quabbin Reservoir that feeds parts of Massachusetts and other reservoirs that serve New York City, the Delaware River that is crucial to New York City and Philadelphia and places in between for their drinking water. We've got natural systems that we've been pumping. We have groundwater that we've been pumping. We have reservoirs that we created and then pump. And if you have precipitation shifts, radical shifts, as we've been experiencing, what they call whiplash weather, that you move from one to the other really rapidly, our systems aren't designed to be that flexible. And that poses dilemmas for us for sustainability on the one hand and absolutely for resilience. And then when you add the question of environmental justice on top of it, it becomes really a very complicated story about which we are not talking enough. We hope to satisfy Chor that we are making progress and understanding and thinking about the complicated story of water. So... Welcome, Char Miller, to Living Well into the Future. You look at many different aspects of the environment. How did water come on your radar? I think probably the way water came on my radar as a natural resource and also a very powerful presence uh, was in 1981 when my wife and I moved to San Antonio. And it didn't take me very long to figure out that, A, I didn't really understand the city because it wasn't set up the way New York and places like that that I knew was set up. And one of the reasons it wasn't is that it's got a major river that runs through the town in ways that is both puzzling on the one hand um, and also quite clearly essential to the community on another. And part of what I began to recognize is that not far from our home was this very large dam designed to protect the downtown core of the city built in the late 1920s, and it still protects the downtown core. But that was my first signal that I actually need to pay attention to stuff because I wasn't really thinking about floods, but clearly that dam was there to stop them. And part of the way I came to understand San Antonio was to just get out and walk. So walk up and down the river, walk along the creeks on the west side of the city, 
and begin to realize that everything that I thought I knew about rivers, this is not the Hudson, it's not the Potomac, it's a very different kind of, of system that flashes, literally flashes with floods, and then sometimes doesn't look like it's there at all. I had come from other parts of the country in the Northeast where I grew up and also living in Los Angeles for my undergraduate work. And there, you never even thought about a river, but here you had to because it was at least the dam was visible. And so thinking about its place in structuring how a city developed uh, forced me to think about the Spanish when they were there, to, about the Payaya who lived there before the Spanish. And from that grew this larger interest in water as a organic feature in a human landscape. You wrote the book, West Side Rising, about the Olmos Dam, including the history of its creation and its social political effect. We'll put a link to that book in our show notes at livingwellintothefuture.net. Could you please tell us about the Olmos Dam? It was just this big concrete object that clearly did flood prevention and flood control work. But once you start digging into a story, stories have a life of their own, and they start branching off in different directions that I didn't know when I started that. So one of the repercussions um, of building a dam in the aftermath of a massive flood that inundated large parts of the city, particularly the west side where it killed upwards of 80 people, is to look at the dam and go, okay, this protects downtown. Who died there? It turns out only four people did, all with Spanish surnames who were not in the downtown core, but between what would become the dam and the downtown core. Almost everybody on the west side who died was Spanish surnames. So suddenly the story isn't just about a dam, it's also about public spending. So what it protected was downstream capital, the investment in a downtown urban economy what it didn't protect are the places that were actually most devastated by that 1921 flood. And in 35, 46, in the 1950s and 60s, parts of the West Side, because there was very little flood control after the 21 flood, would go underwater also. People would die. Their property would be swept away. Cars would be damaged. All sorts of things that had happened in 21 continued to happen up until the 1970s or so. So concrete is an example but concrete leads to these other stories. Another part of that was to look at that dam and to recognize that at the beginning, it had a road over the top. And that road connected two cities or what would become cities that wanted to keep themselves out of San Antonio as tax havens, which the road helped them do because they had their own independent school district. They had a way to insulate themselves from the downtown core and flooding and race and ethnicity issues that they didn't want to deal with. It's white flight, effectively, that the dam helped to make concrete, literally concrete, into and scored into the landscape. So that, that's another part of the story. And a third part of the story is, let's say you put a dam in to protect downtown. What happens to downtown? It turns out the moment you announced the dam, Millions of dollars flowed into San Antonio to build skyscrapers, which it didn't have before. So I used to, when I lived in San Antonio, I would lead tours for visiting conventions and stuff to show them, A, the Spanish city, which is still evident, and B, the 1920s city, between 20 and 29 or so, all these beautiful buildings were constructed. So you can walk through like an archaeologist 
because the dam allows us to do and see the different moments in which a city was built. The final thing I would say is that that on the west side, what has happened since the 1970s was a political revolution in the city that started funneling money because activists demanded it to the west side to build flood control. And then once that happened, people began to think about the rivers and creeks there in a very different way. It's not death that's coming. It's potentially a new life. And so by 2010, 2012, now many years after the 1920, 90 years after the 1921 flood, all of a sudden those creeks on the west side became recreation zones. And so people who would leave those creeks and run away from them at some level are now literally running along them. Uh, and so it's life affirming. It took a long time to get to that position, but it is part of the story that the 1921 flood and the dam helps us to unpack. In your book, Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril, you yeah. have so many just gems of short essays about all kinds of environmental issues. But one apropos of the dam situation is you talk about a particular dam, how it came to be, and how the land around it was developed as a consequence. Yeah, and this was also a flood story. I live in a town called Claremont, which abuts the foothills and the larger San Gabriel Mountains, which was the source of an extraordinary flood in 1938 that ripped through all of the Los Angeles part of Southern California as huge quantities of snow, much like we had this past winter, were hit with warm rains in March of that year and just unleashed these floods that came screaming down canyons and ripped through and again in the town that I now live, tore the place apart. And so here and everywhere else in Southern California, including the city of Los Angeles, pleaded with the federal government, particularly the Corps of Army Corps of Engineers, to construct dams and seal off these canyons, um, which in time happened. That's when the Los Angeles River became not a river, as many people imagine it, but basically a concrete ditch and throughout the place where I live. So, OK, they build it in. And so you look at this dam and you go, okay, this is an impressive earthen dam. I can see why it's here. It does important things in terms of flood control. And then you pivot and you stand on the top of the dam or near it. And then you look downstream and you realize, oh, what this also does, as did the flood dam in San Antonio, it actually creates real estate. Because prior to that point, if you lived in the floodplain, you were an idiot. And there were idiots, I'll tell you. And, and in some cases, because people were poor, they lived where they could live and thus bore the brunt of floods as they did in San Antonio, as, as well as in the Los Angeles region. But if you have a dam, you now can reclaim the floodplain. You can press right up to the flood channel that flows out of that. And one of the things I do with my students is we go up there and I have them look at the mountains and look at the canyons and imagine that water pouring through here so that they get a feel for why that was the decision people made. And then I have them spin on their heels and look south and east and west and spreading out 
is this extraordinarily dense suburb that bounces right up against all of the flood channels that flow past this dam, which causes its own set of dilemmas. Because if that dam were ever to break, or if they had to release an enormous amount of water, that water is going to go somewhere. And in those stiff-walled channels, it's going to blow out and people are not going to be happy. There are a lot of unintended consequences, and there are a lot of consequences that are intended. In San Antonio, they did not want to build flood control for poor Latino neighborhoods and didn't. In in Southern California, it was less about that than like they were realtors who saw in those dams gold signs, and they've made a, a fortune as a consequence. Let's talk about the dams themselves for a moment. It's been a period of years now, decades, since they've been built. Some are probably in better condition, some in worse condition. Because of the recent bursting of the dam in Ukraine, we're aware of the consequences of a dam breaking. What are the issues today that pertain to those dams? Yeah, here again is a reminder, a dam, whether it's made out of concrete or it has a massive earthen dam, is only as good as its construction. And it only lasts as long as it is maintained. And so all of the dams in Southern California, because they are post-1938 flood, are getting very close, relatively close to a century old, more than 75 years old at this point. So that was a question that one of my students and I started posing is, wait a second, these are all very impressive and we see what the consequences are and we get all of this. Who's looking at this? Who's thinking about their maintenance? Obviously, the Army Corps of Engineers will be, but they actually don't maintain projects for which there is no money. And so one of the dilemmas is if they say that a dam and the dam above me here in Claremont is San Antonio. So I never left the city I love. It's San Antonio Canyon Dam. They do have a ranking system, and it's out of a rank of four, or being really good, it's a two. Other dams in, in Whittier Narrows, which is at a pinch point in the San Gabriel River, below which four million people live. Prado Dam, which is at a pinch point in the Santa Ana River, but beneath which another four million people live. These dams are rated one out of four. Okay. so That's pretty frightening. That's pretty frightening. So we started digging. And we found that in the 1980s, the LA Times had articles about Prado Dam needing to be rebuilt. In the 1990s, they talked about Whittier Narrows. And then in the early 2000s, they did it. In early 2010, they did it. And we're sitting there going, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong is that if you need to get the Army Corps to work, you have to have your regional congressionals push through allocations to fund the reparations of these structures. And that's not happening. So it's a ticking time bomb, at least as far as our own analysis can help us understand. But that's a larger issue, which is human beings see these infrastructures as ways by which we control nature. And it's true. It can do that. But you need to be very cautious about what you think that actually means and how long that thing will survive. The Olmos Dam in San Antonio had to be totally rebuilt in the 1980s because, frankly, they didn't build it very well in the 20s. The city was very lucky to dodge that. That's a dilemma. You see it, you go, ah, 
we're safe. And it turns out maybe not. And so we we need to invest more in such infrastructure because of the unintended consequences or the intended consequences of greater growth and development in and around those dams. And once that's happened, you can't back away. You can't pull the dam down. That's no longer possible. And that's a dilemma for us who live here, but it's a reminder that in here and Ukraine and wherever it is, these things are not permanent. So don't treat their floodplains as, as something that you can disappear because it's out of sight, out of mind. That's a really dangerous position to be in. And California was always an earthquake zone, so there's yep. going to be vulnerability there. Yes. And, and then there's the issue of extremes of weather. What's the effect of extremes of weather on these dams? Do you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's actually fairly straightforward. And it's not unlike the extreme of weather that could potentially be devastating for the almost Dam in San Antonio. These dams are designed to prevent certain kinds of episodes. The dam was built for the 1938 flood here in in Southern California. All of them were. We now think that the extremes in weather, and as we discovered this winter, 36 atmospheric rivers came sliding through the state and just dumped an enormous amount of precipitation. The expectation actually is that such Radical swings back and forth between drought and deluge, aridity and just soaking wet may be one of the triggers that we're looking at in the future. If that's the case and you have dams that are creaking, that are aged, whose concrete is less stable than it once was, this is not a time to ignore climate change and the implications that it's producing. It's actually time to get your butts in gear which requires state and local and federal evaluations. The dilemma, of course, is there's only so much money and there's a hell of a lot of dams. Every single canyon in California that can be dammed is dammed, and they're all designed to prevent certain kinds of floods. So here's the problem with history. We tend to take our cues from it, but we're also in situations now that are unprecedented. So to use the past as a marker for what the future will look like is a dangerous proposition. We now have to think as radically and rapidly as the sort of existential crisis is unfolding. And that tends not to be the way we think. And as a historian, of course, I'm petrified to say that history doesn't matter, but it doesn't really matter when you're dealing with wet and dry cycles that are far more tumultuous than we have been used to in the past. It's not only California that has dams, and that may be a new one compared to others that were constructed in the Northeast or the South or wherever. The commitment for money has to be multiplied 50 times. Exactly. And some of this is also thinking about levees. So levees in New Orleans, levees in Mississippi, levees in Sacramento. These things have been there for a very long time. They are well or not well maintained. And, you know, it. we've built cities around them. And as we found out with Katrina, and if not before, that's a very dangerous proposition. Char urges his students, his readers, and now his listeners to do as he does 
and get out walking, biking, or by some other human-propelled means, view their community firsthand in order to understand water infrastructure and its current condition. His student, Spencer Nicholas, is himself an avid biker, and he did just that. As a matter of fact, appropriately considering his project, for part of this interview, Spencer was outside. You'll hear a very insistent bird in the background. If you can identify its call, let us know what it is by sending a comment through our website, livingwellintothefuture.net, or write to me at lwitf22 at gmail.com. I got really excited about the idea of working on an independent study. I wanted to use that as a sort of case study to learn about how water's been developed in California and the ways that it's now used and what some of the issues have become as a result of how we've developed it. And so I spent this past semester from January till I guess about mid-May working with Heather Williams. And Charlie was a huge resource in that because I started taking a class with him concurrently that was on water in the West. And so I reached out to him very early on and spent a lot of time in his office chatting about what to read, what to skip. He obviously has a wealth of knowledge about that topic. And so he was a huge help in curating my reading list and my kind of self-designed syllabus. And then the culmination of the project was this past May, right when I finished school, I went on a long bike tour and I planned out a route that would, in a way, follow the water and follow the story of the water down the Central Valley and specifically seeing some of the main points of infrastructure, main points of interest involved in the Central Valley Project. And so I began up in Shasta, at the Shasta Dam, and I ended up in Bakersfield at the end of it. And along the way, crisscrossed the valley, I think, I wanna say five times, six times, following both rivers and major canals and weaving between some of the major dams and then also riding through a lot of the region that is essentially where the water goes huge like miles and miles of almond orchards miles and miles of pasture land further north near shasta along the way i did a lot of writing did a lot of reflecting did some very informal interviews with people as a way to then see what i had been learning about and put myself in the region that i had been reading about and also carry myself down the length of it because i think to me, the most interesting story about water in California is the scale of it and the scale of what we've changed and these crazy distances that we now move it. And that to me was something that I thought it would be really special to learn about in a way that would help me appreciate that scale. And to me, that meant doing it by bike. How long did your bike journey take you? It was about, it was about two and a half weeks. And it was actually initially going to be a little longer, and I ended up having to adjust some things. It's not a place that lends itself to cycling at all. There were some pretty, there were some pretty bleak, desolate areas, and then there were other areas where all of a sudden roads would just become private with no warning. And that's not an area of, of the state where I feel super comfortable trespassing, which is something I try not to do generally, but especially there. Right. And so it ended up being cut a little short. But it was about two and a half weeks long and about 800 miles. One thing I noticed specifically being on a bike is the gradient that you see moving north to south down the valley. 
you initially have a lot of open space and a lot of pasture land, a lot of grazing, and it's not, it's actually a lot of invasive grass, but it's, it looks relatively natural and dry and golden hills and whatnot. And as you move further south, the orchards become more and more common. And so you exit this region of pasture land and cattle grazing, cattle ranching, and you slowly ride south along this gradient to the point where you're eventually in hundreds of thousands of acres of almond trees. And that gradient was a really interesting visual for me. Especially Uh, since the the water consumption for almonds is considerable. It's huge. It's, yeah, it's absolutely huge. And that, I think, was also, I was reminded on my ride that I was really impressed by the dams, and that was a really a big focal point for me, because I think the, despite the fact that generally I'm pretty anti-dam, and I think it, it's the ecological impacts of those structures outweigh a lot of the benefits in most cases. I also think the engineering feat of them is pretty impressive, and it's worth gazing at for a little while. Yeah. But I think what I realized on my trip is that we move the water around over huge distances and the easy points to focus on are the dams the reservoirs the canals the rivers like these big bodies of water and that's what i realized and what i thought about a lot of my trips that is not really to me the story of water in the central valley that is one part of it and it's a very easy part of it to see But that doesn't really tell the story of where the water goes. I I think the distance that some of the canals run is incredibly impressive, like hundreds of miles long. And also I think what's maybe even more impressive to me on a visual scale is the amount of ground that's covered by these irrigation systems and how there's drip tape, like watering a tree every 15 feet for hundreds of acres it's unbelievable and i think the visual to the there's so many almond trees there the orchards are so dense that it's almost hard to remind yourself that they shouldn't be there because it's just become such a natural part of the both the economy there and also the landscape like you expect to see almond trees there it's not until you like change your the focus of your eyes to see what's behind them it is nothing but the driest, most parched golden hills you've ever seen. In the background of these like lush orchards, it's really a, it's a pretty stark contrast. It's been a really powerful experience to to have put myself in this place, as I said, that I've been studying, that I've been reading about. And I think certainly with water, as you read more about a place and more about the the water politics of a place, it's easy to think that you understand it from a distance, and then you get there and it becomes much more complicated. For me, one of my biggest revelations was the actual infrastructure of water in the Central Valley and the way that water is distributed and how the scale in which that happens. It is impressive to look at a map of the Central Valley project and see the length of the canals, the sizes of the dams, the sizes of the reservoirs. And certainly just as another way to, to grapple with that scale. Uh, but what I found really interesting is that I went into the project expecting that sort of infrastructure to really be the focal point. And for that size of dam, those massive reservoirs to be the grounding force, the main story of water distribution in the valley. And what I found is that 
a much more, a much quieter, nearly invisible, but equally, if not more so important part of the infrastructural system is all of these, is the actual irrigation networks. I went from standing on Shasta Dam to then riding through hundreds of acres of almond trees. And it's difficult to see the water make that transition. And yet you're riding for hours and eventually you hear the sprinkler heads come up. You hear the drip tape leaking water into these orchards. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how that quieter, larger infrastructure of sprinklers and irrigation ditches and drip tape is, in a sense, more of the story of water in the Central Valley than the dams are. That said, the dams are much more visible, much more obvious, and so become the focal point. Are they pulling up groundwater or are they pulling it from the channeled water? It depends where you are. Certainly in some places, they're still pumping groundwater. If you're in really marginal land that's being cultivated, you might not have usable groundwater and therefore relying on surface water and canals. But it's really a different regions of the Central Valley rely on different sources. So this is a study of not only the dams and not only the water flow from the dams, but the entire water system. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a scale that, that almost becomes invisible. Because even I, as someone who spent months reading about this place, spent months reading about how agriculture came to be there, it's the feat of it is so impressive and so huge that you can almost fool yourself into thinking that it's natural. You ride for enough hours through orchards and they're so lush and they're so green and they are so productive that it's hard to imagine the odds that have been overcome for them to grow there. And you see enough of that and begin to think that they're meant to be there, that they should be there, which is another conversation. But grappling with how much has had to happen, how much has had to to have been built in order for those trees to be growing is a pretty staggering thing to to think about while you're there seeing it. Spencer, you've come back from your journey with many thoughts and observations. So then the question is, what do you do with that information once you get it? That's what I'm working on right now. I think what was interesting to me, and I think something that I thought about going into this project, is that this isn't new information. You've known this for a while, or I should say people generally know it. I didn't know it, but generally it's known the amount of water it takes to grow almonds. It's known how much water is moved around in California. And yet those facts don't seem as salient to me as they should be. The stat, if I'm remembering correctly, is agriculture uses 83% of all water in California, which is insane in the most populous state in the country. And in a state where we're constantly talking about drought, where you constantly are seeing signs that say, take shorter showers, buy a low flush toilet, whatever, 83% of it's going somewhere else. And again, that's something that we know theoretically, but it doesn't seem to to me as though there's an understanding of what that actually means. And there doesn't seem to be an understanding from a legislative point of view, how to regulate that because there's economic interests and there's incredibly wealthy, powerful people who own hundreds of thousands of acres of almonds. And it is in their, in the utmost interest for them to not let those statistics be big news headlines. 
And so some of it, to me, comes down to, like, how do we as a state or how do we as a country, although I'm going to say state because I think it gets a little too complicated, how do we as a state begin to regulate water use in a way that might not be ultimately economically beneficial right now, but in reality is the only way we can move forward as a somewhere anybody can live, basically. And we are not doing a great job of that and we historically have done a horrible job of that I just feel like we A. don't understand it B. not enough people know it and C. How are, there's too many competing interests to allow people to regulate it efficiently so perhaps you will publish your thoughts from this project and get involved in policy as you were thinking about I think it's definitely possible. I think in some ways, like, a lot of people who study things like this, especially my age, can end up a little cynical about it. And I think that's a scary profession to be planning to go into, politics in general, but also especially environmental policy, just because it's like, it seems like we're just totally screwed. And it's so easy to read this stuff and even go see it and then write about it yourself. And it's really easy to leave that feeling like it's this lost cause which I don't think is an effective way to think about anything, but it's definitely a daunting career. So what is your plan for a career now that you're one year out? We talked about your initial thoughts about environmental policy and why you might not want to do that, and I'd like to hear that again. Certainly in in this moment, feeling thankful that I am headed back to school this fall that this decision can be delayed just a little bit longer. But yeah, we did talk a bit about policy. We talked a bit about that as a, uh, or what it's like to be a student these days studying the environment, studying environmental politics in particular. And it is, a, as I told you earlier, it's a very daunting thing to be headed into. It's a daunting industry. It's a scary one. It's something that I think can feel pretty hopeless in a way. Which maybe feels overly cynical. And also, I think, as a student who does love this area of study, it is also not a very optimistic field. The world of environmental policy is pushing for small wins in and amongst a lot of maybe larger losses, or so it feels at certain times. And that's definitely been a maybe a deterrent for me as someone just about to finish school. It's a tough thing to want to head into that sort of career where it's not always going to be easy or always going to be consistently reassuring. And yet I also do find myself occasionally or regularly drawn to that sort of area of work because I do find it compelling. I do find the topics compelling and a lot of the places where those policies play out, I find compelling. And so it's a constant battle between how, how hard is that how hard of a career is that in terms of your own perseverance and optimism and also how significant and how important are those topics? With respect to your independent study project, have you achieved your goals? My goal from the start of this project was to better understand a place that I was living and better understand a state that I lived in. And I think that is a really... That's become something very important to me and very close to my heart. 
And that was the basis of the whole project. That was why I wanted to really educate myself on some of the intricacies of how California works and how water politics work and why they become the way they are. Congratulations and thank you, Spencer. We wish you luck. Now let's get back to Dr. Charmiller and his book, Natural Consequences. In one of the essays, you wrote about the attempt by a group of people to mine water and sell it to California. My understanding is that the aquifer you write about in Natural Consequences has not yet been exploited, and you question the need to do so now. The dilemma is that many of us get our water from public water supplies, water supply companies that are publicly owned and operated or are community owned at some level. There there are all sorts of schemes around the West where an argument is has been made for more than 10 years. And I'm really interested in the argument to see how it plays out, just to see how it plays out, because we haven't gone in this route, where venture capital of one form or another might buy up various resources or have ownership of them and then tries to sell them in one direction or another. The reference you're making to is a particularly odd scheme in the Mojave Desert, where since the 1980s, a group of venture capitalists have owned large amount of acreage that gives them access to an enormous amount of water underneath that desert. So here we have a desert that has water underneath it in an aquifer that they're trying to mine to sell to Los Angeles or San Diego or some big pot of money that's out there seeking new supplies. And it's run into, and here's a really interesting part of the story, it's run into a coalition of groups, indigenous, environmental, water resource types who go, this is crazy. The thing we should not be chasing is new supplies because that's that's the illusion that we have been chasing for a long time. What we should be doing is ratcheting down demand. Indigenous folks, of course, have multiple interests in this because as they proposed to pump, they would reduce the springs far away, actually, some mileage away from the pumping site that are in sacred spaces that have certain enormous value for the Mojave Indians of one form or another. And so is problematic in all sorts of ways. But it's been interesting tracking that story because then it blew up in a political sense. So Donald Trump said, let's make sure that they can do this, tore out some of various environmental protections that had been there. Joe Biden got into office and almost immediately, it's relatives in terms of how the federal government operates, said, nope, not going to happen. And here's why. And went back to Obama aged various prohibitions, which we're seeing all over the country. Um, up in the boundary waters of Minnesota, it, it, Obama said, no, you can't put this mine here because it's going to destroy the boundary waters, with ha- which has all sorts of indigenous support and local environmental support. Trump flipped that, Biden flipped it back. So What we're seeing at the federal level is these are very partisan responses. And to weather those flips back and forth, what we really need to do at local levels is to stop this process of, and the like 
And so, though it's not in the book, there was a very important election that happened. And in our local water district, which was supporting this project called Cadiz, and they've now shelved it because a progressive got in there and they started having these conversations and said, you know what, we're actually spending money we shouldn't be spending. And they shelved it. And there was a lot of rational conversation going on the board that had been irrational before. And that's how you work it, right? You get at the national level a, a kind of complicated set of stories. And ultimately, these decisions are made at the home base. Um, and that's why in natural consequences, one of the things I focused on is what's the local story? How do we tell that story? How do we tell that story in a way that is consistent with what people seem to be saying about that place? And let's amplify those voices in part because that is one of the resolutions, one of the tactics that we have to take to both solve some of the problems that we're trying to solve um, and also build coalitions that help us extend those sort of problem-solving devices across a wider landscape. You've gotten to the very reason for this podcast, which is to inform people and stimulate discussions on solutions to problems like the ones we've been talking about. To conclude, we're talking about exceedingly complicated issues, and we're talking about Texas and California, which have climate issues that are different from weather, rainy, wet, snowy, cold, whatever, around the country. But yet, with climate change, we don't know wherever we are, what we're going to face in terms of water loss, water use, and our infrastructure. So, do you have some advice to the listeners? Yeah. So one of the ways to think about natural consequences is to know that sort of the ways in which I was trying to put this set of stories together, one of which is that it is partially framed around an insight that Charles Sepulveda, a University of Utah indigenous scholar whose home territory is where I live, actually. He's a Tongva and a Hachiman member of those two tribes. He raises the question of those of us who are not indigenous, like, what are you doing? What's your place here? And his answer is, your place here is as a guest. You got a choice. Are you a good guest, mediocre guest, or a bad guest? Like, how do you see yourself in this place? And so the book is trying to answer, like, here's ways that we can at least be better guests, So that's one sort of framework. The other framework is to think ecologically, to go back to your point, every place is different and it is by habitat, it is by ecotone, it is by bio bio systems of one form or another. The third way, because I'm an historian, is like the places that we live in have history to them. And you need to know those things to understand where we are now before we start thinking about some future. So if you put these three together, And add one other ingredient, which for me is vital, which is walking. Get outside the place that you live, wherever outside is and whatever that place is, and start to walk and think about how it's put together. Think historically, yes. Think about its ecology, to be sure. Think about the way in which, as a guest, you would like to participate in its rehabilitation, whatever that may be. So that is about as local as you get. Yeah, where your feet are is where you start. 
And then you figure out, you got to observe, you got to think about these things. And so much as I did in San Antonio, and frankly, I was about as ignorant as you could be, but I figured, okay, that's a starting place to walk, ride bikes, whatever it is that gets you out of a car, because a car is a hermetically sealed environment, and it doesn't help you really understand things very well, um, is to really do a kind of 360 about where you live and the kinds of issues. And then it's, then, and this is totally idealistic, but I think it's absolutely true. We don't talk about the very local issues very well, any more than one does in Washington, D.C. or Sacramento or Austin. And I think that's part of why I wrote a book that has as its subtitle, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril. Let's have these kinds of conversations that we need to have in a way that allows us then to move, as I said just a few moments ago, it allows you to organize locally. And those organizing at local levels, as much as it is hard at some level, it is the place we live. It's the place that we can actually have an impact. I'm not a congressional representative. I'm not a state senator. I'm just a human being sitting in a town. I'm trying to figure out ways to help myself and my community survive. And I think whether it's water, which is what we've been talking about, or wildfires, which are blowing up all over the place and have been for some time, it could be smog, it could be environmental justice and injustices that you want to go after. Watching my students after they leave college at Trinity University in San Antonio and now in the Claremont Colleges, there's an eagerness to put their hands on a problem. To put your hands on a problem means you're in a place and you're in that place. And so you need to know it's ecology and history and indigeneity. And so that when your hands get on that problem, whatever, it is intimate, it is tactile, and is the place that we call home that I think makes it possible for us to care about it. And once you care about something like a watershed, it's pretty hard to say no to it. Char, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. We'll, Pleasure. We'll have your book on in our show notes so people can find it. Thank you. And wish you the best. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. This concludes our current series on water. Please let us know what you thought of it, what you learned from it, what conversations and actions it has led you to. And future programs in Living Well into the Future will continue to look into the ways that solution makers are working to provide resilience and maintain a sustainable future. We'll come back to food, housing, climate, and health from the lens of solution makers working on sustainable actions that create resilience for people and the planet. If you have topics you'd like to hear about or a guest you'd like to suggest, please send your comments and suggestions to us through our website, livingwellintothefuture.net, or to me, Julie B. Adler, directly at lwitf twenty two at gmail.com. You can find out more about our guests and topics along with our show notes 
at livingwellintothefuture.net. Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. Thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to our supporters, including Berkshire Ali, WTBR-FM 89.7 Pittsfield, and the Berkshire Eagle. Thanks to Cindy Kaplan for directoral assistance. Our theme music is written and performed by Michael Koppenheffer. Incidental music is used with permission. The opinions expressed in this program are those of our guests and not of WTBR, Berkshire Ali, the Berkshire Eagle, or the LWITF production team.